Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast on neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We are a group of computational neuroscientists. I'm Grace. I'm Josh. And Connor is not with us for this episode, but we have Nancy Padilla, who you may remember from episode five, our episode on neural oscillations. Uh, When she guest hosted with us then, she was a PhD student at Columbia. Nancy, do you want to say hello and tell us what you're up to now? Hello, everyone. Uh, Thanks for having me me back, Grace and Josh. Uh, So back when I did episode number five or six, uh, I was still doing my PhD and working with Josh Gordon at Columbia University. Now a postdoc at MIT uh, in the lab of Kate Tai, and and I'm studying what are the, I'm trying to figure out what the neural circuits that underlie social hierarchy are. And I'm really interested in figuring out to what extent mice socialize and how can we measure that. Okay, thanks. And so that leads us into the topic of this episode, which is social neuroscience. Um, And so uh, Nancy works, as she said, with mice, and a lot of the readings that we uh, chose for today are more human-focused, but it'll be interesting to talk about kind of the contrasting between humans and animals, especially in this domain of social neuroscience. Yeah, I, I have a bias for, for focusing on things that are common between, uh, that exist both in, in humans and animals. And, and I also am aware that it's just so much, uh, if you ever wanted, if, if there's something too complex, like, then it becomes really difficult to decide if animals do it or not, you know? So it's like you cannot say they do not do it, but you cannot say they do it either. So it's like you hit a wall, so you might as well. It is so complex already. You might as well start with simple questions, and I think I, I, I don't um, understand the, the opposite approach. Uh, so I what, guess, what would be an example where it's, it's obviously too complicated, for example? Well, empathy, for example, uh, there are some people that are that have some sort of models of empathy in rat, but I don't know if the empathy is equivalent to the 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 empathy they can record in animals is it equivalent to the empathy we feel as humans. I'm not sure. Yeah, um, and so is that are the people who have this kind of model are they trying to study something like autism because i feel like that's usually where for some reason it becomes acceptable to claim that animals are similar enough is when you're using them to study diseases so there's like mouse models of depression and alzheimer's and all these things that it's not always exactly clear what it means when it's the version of it in the mouse and how it relates to humans yeah i i think i i don't remember that particular study i'm thinking about was i'm sure they they mentioned these social disorder at the introduction of the study. Um, It's possible that even if it's not equivalent to the human version of empathy, it's still interesting on itself if a rat is making a sacrifice for the other rat. Um, So, I mean, perhaps it's not a problem, but to answer that it is or it is not equivalent sounds almost impossible to me and perhaps not necessary, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It, it becomes necessary when you want to then be able to do something with humans as a result of the findings in, in the rodents or whatever other animal. But there always is, you know, I think reason enough to understand things for their own sake. Um, so we read basically two reviews, or I guess they were all three reviews or two reviews and an opinion piece or something like that. Um, and so the first one was Conceptual Challenges and Directions for Social Neuroscience, which was written by Ralph Adolphs in 2010. And then the next one was Brain Basis of Human Social Interaction from Concepts to Brain Imaging, and that was by Hari and Kajula in 2009. And the last one was Brain to Brain Coupling, a Mechanism for Creating and Sharing a Social World, and that was by Uri Hassan et al. in 2012. Um, And so, yeah, so the first two of these kind of offer overviews. The first one in particular, the one by Adolphs, is um, a lot about the questions behind the field of social neuroscience and a little bit of the history. So we can start by getting into 
that um, one thing to say, I think, is that this is a pretty new field. I mean, neuroscience itself is like a new field by the standards of most of academics and science, but social neuroscience in particular, uh, they say that f that the phrase was first coined or it was proposed as a field in 1992. Um, and so this was kind of at the early end of fMRI being a thing. So it was kind of put forth before there was even uh, this boom in, in brain imaging. And so you can imagine that the the ways that you could approach the topic of social neuroscience in humans in particular was pretty limited. Um, but since then, it's it's taken off. I mean, I think that the sort of his, the, the historical recency of it makes sense when you think about the sort of historical difficulty of even recording from a single brain. It, you know, so people have studied interactions behaviorally or psychologically between multiple people for a long time, but it's only been relatively recently that people have been able to do you know recording imaging in human and and large-scale recordings in animals and you know it's even more technically challenging to be able to do imaging of multiple people or recordings of multiple animals that are interacting so it's sort of natural that it would be right uh, even more recent field yeah, I see it. I see it that way too. It's like there's there has been social psychology studies for much longer. Neuroscience is like a baby field, and then it is really technical. It, it is more than double the trouble, I think, when you're trying to record two brains at once, regardless yeah, yeah, if it's absolutely. humans or animal. It's not. It, it's a compounding. So I can imagine how people were not even trying to attempt it until very recently. Yeah, and because most of social neuroscience research actually uh, isn't done with recording multiple brains at once. That's I think it's been a goal for a long time, but practically speaking, it was difficult. And so uh, in the earlier days and even now, there's still a lot of social neuroscience is done um, just using either uh, like one person being recorded and the other person is just interacting with them to kind of provide a stimulus or an input, or even more abstract than that, some of the fMRI studies that are covered in these papers are things like if you have a person uh, try to read and analyze a sentence that involves uh, describing humans, you know, even that can be considered a social stimulus if it's making them think about other humans rather than thinking about inanimate objects. Or I've, I've, I've heard other kind of clever tricks around this where, for example, you would have an fMRI setting where you record one person while they, for example, read something and then record another person while they listen to something that the first person read. So it's sort of asynchronously uh, social, but where you're doing only one imaging at a time. Um, and I, I think sort of you can generalize this kind of logic a bit. Yeah, and I think one of the early studies where they actually did technically record two people interacting was uh, Montague et al. in 2002, and that setup was two people in fMRI scanners, but they were, uh, this said like a thousand miles apart right. and interacting via the internet, sending like communication to each other while they were both being recorded. Um, and so obviously, therefore, especially this was in 2002, there was kind of a lag. This wasn't like really proper like face-to-face -face conversation. I don't know why. I think the fact that they were a thousand miles apart is supposed to add like flourish to this <laughs> and make it seem more impressive, but it just is kind of hindering in a way. Uh, was this but, a science paper? I think I, I saw it a long time ago. Um, I think that's what it was from. I don't actually remember. It was just like briefly cited in uh, one of these papers as one of the early examples of this happening. Um, but yeah, so this idea of comparing um, across animals and humans, I think comes up in this field it seems like it seems like there's a sense that there are elements of social neuroscience and kind of social understanding and acting that are unique to humans or at least people are putting forth the idea that they're unique to humans and that may um, explain why a lot of social neuroscience is done in humans I mean a lot of different types of neuroscience is done in humans and it's kind of obvious that we want to understand humans um, but certainly like this um, Adolf's paper describes these three different categories of social information processing. There's uh, social perception, which is like very immediate kind of sensory perception of facial identification or that kind of thing, or like sensing someone touching you, these kinds of very like bottom-up immediate processes. 
Um, and then the two other categories, social cognition and social recognition, or sorry, social regulation is the third one. Um, these are ones that are about understanding other minds, like theory of mind would be an example of social cognition, empathy would be an example from the social cognition category, and then social regulation is things like self-reflection and emotion, uh, regulating your emotions and stuff, and those two categories they posit as being unique to humans. And I don't know what that's based on. I mean, obviously other people would disagree if there's rodent models of empathy and all of that kind of thing. And certainly I would say other primates, there's good evidence for theory of mind-like behavior um, in other primates. But there is this sense that there is something special, especially about language in humans, that seems relevant to understanding like the place of humans in the world. Yeah, when people use uh, language as the argument for like, oh, it's unique to humans, then I always wonder, well, what if we haven't figured out, especially recently? Okay, so I work with mice. And when I was in grad school, I pretty much ignored, I knew that mice vocalize, but I, and they vocalize in ultrasonic ranges, uh, but I ignored it. You know, nobody talked about it in the lab. We didn't really measure it. Uh, we were really studying one animal at a time. So it was like, even if they're vocalizing, nobody's hearing, right? Um, so, uh, but now that I am studying social behaviors in mice, now vocalizations become like a real, well, I really need to care about this because if I am trying to measure their behavior and record and link that to the neural activity, maybe there is some viability in the neural activity that's actually due to them vocalizing. So now I'm actually starting to record these vocalizations. So anytime someone says like, oh, you know, it's like language is unique to humans. Now, especially because I am, you know, trying to tackle this new uh, thing of, you know, mice vocalizing to each other. And I'm like, is it, is it unique to humans? Like, I think animals have rudimentary versions of language. Certainly uh, communication via vocalizations. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. And I think we, covered, we read something about this in our episode on brain size because that's another realm where people want to claim that like humans are unique or it's a, humans a are outliers in yeah. some way with respect to the structure or size of their brain relative in, to other similar animals. In that one, we covered some stuff about dolphins, and I think I mean it's it's known that dolphins have pretty complex vocalizations that transmit complicated information. So uh, it seems like. While I totally understand why you'd want to focus on humans for social neuroscience for a lot of reasons, I don't know that it's fair or even necessary to try to make the claim that there are so many things that are unique to humans here. Right, right. So we can give some examples from these different categories um, that this first article lays out. And so, as I said, the perceptual ones are like very immediate, and I think there was... Uh, an effort here to kind of make the point that social signals are kind of as primary and as basic as any other signals. So, which to me was like a, a somewhat insightful take on the issue because I think of social neuroscience as being about more higher level abstract things. Yeah. But they talk about um, like pheromones and different animals and insects having kind of receptors where they can, I think it was flies having receptors made specifically for detecting uh, a chemical that another male gives off and it kind of induces male aggression in flies. And these kinds of like very direct pathways that just are like another unit of your species left a signal for you and it's going to like make you do something in response in these uh, direct ways that are usually more like thought of as being associated with primary senses not social behavior. Yeah I also appreciated that section too because uh, sometimes I find myself wondering if if social stimuli are just hijacking the other, you know, the sensory pathways. But this was a good reminder that no, there's actually unique pathways that are utilized for social stimuli, or they're different enough that they have. Or they're, or, they're, or maybe even co-evolved, right? I mean, so yes, like, exactly. Yes. I mean, and so the, people talk about this sometimes in the context of like facial recognition, that like features of the face perhaps have evolved to become salient and people have perhaps evolved to be able to detect, you know, other faces or in the case of birds with, you know, certain plumage displays or things like this, you could imagine something similar. Yeah, they cite in one of these articles how infants um, kind of orient towards faces as early as something like six months. Um, and at that point, 
their visual system is like pretty shit by most measures, but they have enough of a, a sensory system to be able to identify vague facial-like patterns and orient towards them more so than non-facial patterns, which suggests, suggests that there's something like pretty innate about that detection system. And the fact that we like see faces in objects that aren't faces, if they just have like two holes and then like another half circle underneath it and you're just like mm-hmm. oh that's a face <laughs> yeah yeah I wonder if animals have that too um, oh I just saw I think there was some paper about that where monkeys do show a similar effect for things that look like faces so yeah <laughs> yeah maybe mice uh, I mean so many many social experiments behaviors are reduced to well the mouse is exposed to urine smell right and so it's almost like a, a, an attempt to control the experiment so for con- for context, I mean, you're, oh, you're let me give some context to that. Social. Yes, exactly. So the so the the equivalent of like, well, we 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 respond in a social. Our brain responds as if it was a social stimulus, even though it's like a line and two, uh, two points and a line. Perhaps uh, more rudimentary animals have something similar because, uh, in some experiments, they use urine mouse mice don't really see that well but they smell really really well and the way they identify animals from each other is essentially with the pheromones that exist in their urine their pee so a a neural response to the pee is is distinct and social and it's considered like social cue and is there um that's called the vomerome nasal system or there's a separate system it's like there's certain receptors that pick up on these uh pheromone proteins and they go it's processed slightly different than normal olfaction like they go they have direct paths to subcortical areas and that kind of thing so this is like this direct idea that it's like an immediate sensory input that goes into some important brain area and it's meant to be purely social exactly yeah and there is, in fact, like certain visual cues do have some like analogous, yeah, like the facial stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just for for more context on this, right? I mean, we sort of naively think of urine having a smell or visual patterns going through like a normal visual processing pathway, but like there are in some for some very specific things in the brain, there are sort of like shortcuts, and certain things like circadian rhythms also have this where. Yeah, I don't actually, now that I think about it, I don't know that I can think of evidence that face stimuli actually go through these kind of shortcut paths. I just know that they are detectable at an early age, and they're very, like, distracting stimuli. So that kind of suggests that maybe they they do go through these shortcut paths, but I'm not Actually, sure. there was a, I'm trying to remember in which... Uh, yeah, one of the articles mentioned this. In one of the articles, it's possible in the super long one, there was a line of one study that showed that within 50 milliseconds... Uh, people could tell if the picture was a social picture or an object, suggesting that it was bypassing the cortex, which I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that's true, because that time scale would suggest that, yeah, it's it's going through some faster route. And, like, as someone who uh, studies vision, it's like, you know that facial stimuli are special. If you just want to have, like, a set of objects to use in a vision task, you can't just, like, throw a face in there because it's going to be treated very differently than any other visual stimuli. It's bigger than the sum of its parts. That's yeah, it's very good. <laughs> yeah. Which I think big picture, it kind of... It, it, since we are social animals and there are so many animals that rely on each other, it makes sense that the brain would co-evolve, you know, systems for social stimulus and really quickly paying attention to other animals. Um, So at least I can justify from the big picture evolution. And it's interesting, I guess it seems like in humans, there's not so much evidence for pheromone effects like those that are seen in mice, like this kind of separate pathway um, that picks up uh, certain types of signals left by other people. Obviously, like we can smell other humans and we can have thoughts about that <laughs> but that seems to work via the normal olfactory process that lets us smell anything else in the world um so that seems like a perhaps a, a thing that's been faded out i mean humans i guess have not great smell compared to a lot of other animals generally so it kind of makes sense that maybe we've switched to a more visual stimulus based 
processing system and that includes for social things as exactly well. and then we stopped evolving for being sm better at smelling because we just were so good at seeing that perhaps smelling was more troublesome i don't know but it is true that our olfactory bulb is minuscule when you consider the ratio of the rest of the brain compared to rodents um, that have a huge like the percent i wish i had a number but the ratio of the size of the olfactory bulb in a mouse is in a mouse and in a rat is much bigger than our olfactory bulb to the rest of our brain. In a sort of similar way with what happens with uh, primates and the, the visual cortex, right? Like the ratio of visual cortex to the rest of the brain is much larger than any other animal that I can think of. Yeah, it takes up a lot for sure. Uh, another example that was kind of surprising to me was this uh, social touch example. And they say that basically there are touch pathways that, uh, you know, you have touch receptors in your skin and certain types of like soft caressing that we would associate with um, pleasant social touch. I guess the activation of those fibers releases uh, oxytocin and... Um, they also said that in people who have a disease where those fibers lose their myelination, so they lose their like protective coating and they can't work very well, people can still sense that they are being touched in like a pleasant way, but they can't localize the touch. They don't know where on their body it's oh, coming from. They yeah. just get some input that says like pleasant touch is happening, which suggests that this is like an important social cue that's being preserved, even if like the specifics of the message are kind of getting degraded. So they still get the sensation even if they can't identify yeah and so they associate this um kind of role of social touch with the fact that primates tend to have social grooming and these kinds of things so it's like you know a way to signal perhaps your social like role or your place in the social hierarchy and just get information about you know how people are treating you via social touch so yeah so that's kind of the um these immediate bottom-up uh fast social processing that can use you know the same systems that we use for other things but also can sometimes have more direct paths uh, and then the next two categories are these more high level things that require kind of doing further processing on those bottom-up inputs so uh, as we said social cognition things like theory of mind and moral judgment just sort of as a, as a framing I found that people were including such in my opinion, kind of lofty and, and somewhat broad topics as part of social neuroscience specifically, almost an interesting like sociological thing. The fact that like, you know, these articles more than many articles in neuroscience, you know, cited philosophers directly or quoted Wittgenstein or, um, and what I thought that was... What do you think that means? Yeah, what, what, what? I don't know, it, 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 you know, the, the ambition or scope of, of what's intended to be covered is, is, is broader, or if the topics, in order to even clearly articulate what, you know, when, when you're talking about these sort of social things, to even, like, it, it becomes more of a challenge or, or sort of an open difficulty to even frame what you mean by studying certain, certain subtopics. You know, there, there's a large field of people who study language in general in linguistics and in philosophy and, and in neuroscience. So, so they touch on those fields. But like, you know, here in, in the sort of realm of, of, of social neuroscience, you have to sort of, to some extent, deal with like complicated philosophical abstractions like the self versus the other. And, you Certainly know, in these more higher order facilities that they're yeah, I mean, talking so, about in a lot of the human work. Exactly. In, in the sort of, in, I mean, we, we've touched upon, it, you know, what we were just discussing was this sort of a lot of the bottom up stuff that's like very conventionally neuroscientific, like what are the sort of pathways by which certain stimuli get to the brain and maybe a little bit about like what parts of the brain process those stimuli. Um, mm -hmm. But the sort of, you know, you, you get to something as, as soon as you start asking questions, you know, how do you study how one organism interacts with another organism of the same species you have to start doing things that are a bit more complicated in terms of defining behaviors and defining what the defining what those interactions even look like yeah i mean a thing that they focus on a lot is the idea that you use these bottom-up stimuli to infer kind of latent variables about another being so like the mental state of someone else you can see someone's face 
not only does that tell you who that person is, but it's probably going to tell you something about their emotional state because facial expressions convey emotion. And so you're doing this process of kind of guessing the internal state of another person. And once you get into that realm of like internal states and latent variables, you, you're beyond what can be measured easily in the lab in a certain way. And so exactly. I think it does rely more on these vaguer, high-level concepts. I, I, I guess what, what maybe strikes me as particularly difficult about this is science depends so heavily on the ability to measure things. And so part of what has always struck me for as long as I've been aware of social neuroscience as, as particularly so difficult... like half an hour now? No, 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 no. <laughs> like, you know, I've, I've, I've heard of it as I've been educated about neuroscience more broadly, right? And part of what's Part of what's struck me as, as sort of difficult about studying social phenomena is defining the social phenomena and measuring all of the relevant variables, right? People, in order to study things scientifically, you want to be able to measure as much as you can about the setting and the situation. And so, you know, we've talked about the technical difficulty of measuring multiple brains at the same time, and there are cool shortcuts you can take to get around that um, to some extent. And but as this advances, I'm sure people will want to do that directly more and more. Um, but 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 you have to measure the behavior of both organisms. You have to sort of know. You have to you have to believe you you can know. You have to be able to make you know clear assumptions that get at what do you think the different aid the different organisms mean when they're doing certain things to each other. Yeah. You know, like intention comes into it and and sort of beliefs that one organism has about the other get into it and so it becomes yeah, very yeah. complicated it feels also separating what's the social what what are, what is it or what are the organisms that are interacting doing because it's a social interaction and what are they doing because it unrelated the context you know like isolating yeah. the social from the rest of the, what's going on i think that's also really challenging yeah i think and i think that that problem makes sense in terms of experimental design like what is the animal going to respond to something in the environment that isn't the other animal and if so like I want to minimize that if I'm trying to study social interaction there was a weird kind of theme in one of these that was about trying to like make the point that social neuroscience is special and separate from other types of neuroscience and I didn't understand that in terms of like studying it in the brain it seems like it's not necessarily it doesn't require a fundamentally different approach. The stimuli you're using are different in a way, but I don't know that it's fundamentally different or that you should expect to find like a subset of the brain that is exclusively social. I think it uses all of the areas of the brain that are necessary and it probably does overlap in many respects. I mean, the fact that we kind of use analogies to talk about people or the idea of like something that comes up is like predicting behavior or predicting things about social interactions and we predict things about non-social things as well and why not like use similar brain areas if they're useful it seems like you shouldn't expect social neuroscience to be super special yeah perhaps this review wants to it does try to bring the point of it is interdisciplinary you know uh, uh, more unique than other types of, of fields um, I think that I can easily disagree with them at the level of perception, for sure. Well, in a way, actually, actually, you know, to, to respond better to your point, there's definitely unique uh, pathways to process the stimuli, as we were just talking about, you know, like the pheromones in animals, uh, the face patch in the uh, primates. Um, at once that stimuli has been interpreted as social, then it does, yeah, I agree with you, Grace, that it should converge with the rest of the brain because you know, it's just like decision-making and evaluating and then motor planning, I guess. Um, so I, I personally, I am taking, I am treating it as the same as the other fields of neuroscience and then just my stimuli is different. Um, but it's more complex, right? Like it's a, the stimuli is a, because it's social being on the other side, it's not just, there's, it's not just social stimulus, but it's also moving and it's also doing, doing things. Uh, so, so it's definitely a multi-sensorial and unique stimulus when it's another organism that's the stimulus. Yeah, and I think that 
it kind of relates to um, what we were talking about, this like kind of reliance more on philosophy or psychology in terms of like describing things because it's so complex and because the experimental field hasn't been around for that long. There's not, I feel like there hasn't been time for social neuroscience to like narrow down its focus and to come up with like a strict vocabulary for what it's studying and that kind of thing. And so it's relying a lot on social psychology, which has existed for longer, and it just has more high-level questions. Like the pieces that we read were um, overviews, and they kind of explicitly said, like, this is what we think, you know, people should be thinking about moving forward. These are, like, suggestions for the future. There isn't so much of, like, here's, like, the bulleted list of facts that we've learned and, like, concepts that we've developed. I think it's just partly just because it's new and because it's complicated and it's new because it's complicated so which is to just say that it hasn't been around for that long because it's technically difficult and and conceptually also there was this kind of idea of like a desire to kind of list all the brain regions that are involved in different parts of social cognition so i have some examples the superior temporal sulcus is linked to the detection of biological motion so like the motion that agents and other species would make rather than just like the wind uh, the medial prefrontal cortex and midline cortical structures are related to perspective taking as well as self-related processing and awareness. The temporal pole and amygdala to social scripts, emotions, and judgments. Uh, so those are just some examples of like these kind of associations people have come up with. And I think that there's a temptation to read into those things maybe more than should be done. But then at the same time, uh, it also seemed like the people who were writing these reviews were like skeptical of that as well. And like they they noticed that there should be a push more towards like process questions. Like how does this turn into this or how does this behavior happen rather than just like correlating. Where? Yeah, like a, okay. this area goes with this kind of thing and so on. So, I mean, I think this is, again, it's something that comes from limitation of technique and like, you know, being early on in the field. Like first mm-hmm. you kind of, you know, make the map, you like lay out the land and then you can like do more interesting things with with those things hopefully yeah i think this is definitely a consequence of like how well i was just gonna i wanted to say like uh that's how in a way you know brain science started right like people had lesions of these particular brain regions and then scientists and and medical doctors noticed oh there's a deficit in this so we are biased to want to find where before we even know what or how (laughs) yeah Wait, Grace, but does that mean that you don't agree with them that there is a social part of the brain that's unique to the rest of the brain, or at least a social system in the brain? I don't think, my guess is that you will not find an area of the brain that is exclusively involved in social interaction. But what about a system? Well, a system seems even less likely, I guess. Well, to say a system, Mm -hmm. it depends on what you mean. If you mean like some sort of distributed set of different brain regions that act in a certain coordinated way. I feel like that's almost a vague enough uh, <laughs> notion to begin with that it's like... Sure. Yeah, of course. You'll, <laughs> okay. find, you'll find a system that relates to anything that an organism does, probably, if, okay. if you mean okay. system in that sense. Because reading these, these uh, reviews was not the first time. Like This social brain, quote-unquote, uh, term is, is thrown around and is very heavily utilized by uh, social field uh, of the study of behavior so it's unique to it's interesting to hear that uh, you guys don't really see eye to eye with that um, pursuit of the understanding of the social brain I mean, this isn't specific again a way in which social neuroscience is not unique is this criticism is not unique to social neuroscience it's I don't to think. everything that yeah because I mean yeah. this I think this comes more from fMRI research just because of some of the limitations of the technology so it happens in the study of attention you have like attention networks and what that refers to is certain sets of brain areas that kind of uh, change their activity in coordinated ways and you can call that a system I don't know that it's super explanatory or mechanistic it's just saying like these areas seem to be involved and I'm sure yeah. you can find a set of areas that yeah. are in the way that they move together are unique to social situations but I'm just saying I can't imagine that social things are so unique that they have like their own completely separate processing system yeah, yeah. I mean I so I was I mean, as as this discussion is going on, I was thinking about also in the second article, it gets discussed a bit more about uh, mirror neurons and mirror neuron system 
um, how there's at least overlap in the sort of activation that you see in the brain between engaging in a behavior and observing another person engage in or perform some some behavior um, and I mean even even at the level of speech when you listen to someone motor articulatory pro, uh, regions of the brain will will be uh, activated in a way that reflects you know either thinking about how you would say similar things or thinking about what you would say in that circumstance so uh, I mean while there's a lot there's a lot going on there and I don't want to like Wait. oversimplify it that's true, but do you want to define mirror neurons for our listeners? So yeah, so uh, yeah, mirror neurons were discovered in 2001, and basically they're these individual neurons in the premotor area of the brain. They were found in monkeys, and they uh, respond, so they become more active when you uh, or the monkey observes someone performing a certain action, like picking up a tool or like moving uh, food to their mouth, something like that. Um, and they respond the same when they observe someone else do that and when the animal does the movement itself. And so the idea is that they're kind of representing this action regardless of, of who is doing the action. And I think the the findings, so they, this has been like picked up by like, you know, popular science and by um, a lot of different researchers and they've kind of expanded the definition of them and uh, said that they're involved in a whole bunch of things. But I think the remo- most robust findings regarding actions of single neurons is that uh, it has to be goal-oriented behaviors. So it's not just like if you flail your hands around or something like that, that it'll be the same. It has to be these kind of like individual units of action that achieve some sort of minor goal. So the, the implication is that it's it has to do both with sort of interpreting what the viewed organism is doing and also kind of knowing how what they're doing is related to what you might do if in a similar situation or something like that. Yeah, and so one of the the findings that kind of further suggests that it's about a goal is that about half of these cells will still fire even if they see the initiation of some very common action and then the end point is kind of blocked off by like the person picks something up and moves their hand behind a wall or something. It's like the idea is that it's signaling the intent of this goal-directed movement, and that's what's in common. I mean, this this to me is like a clear link uh, between social neuroscience and sort of individual neuroscience, where like an individual organism engaged in some activity or, or task or whatever, and when you're trying to study that that organism in isolation, you can sort of see a connection to like the ways that they could like learn when watching other agents or interpret other agents. Yeah, and I think one of the reviews cites that these things can, um, it's a, this motor, or sorry, mirror neuron system is plastic and people like dancers who have a lot of experience watching people and imitating them um, kind of have different effects in this area and are better able to mimic people, obviously. So it's kind of like a a system that exists to allow you to to mimic people um, or mimic other members of your species uh, and then it can be expanded on in certain circumstances so then Josh like just to make sure you I understood your point was like the way you see social behaviors is like as an extension of the behaviors that one individual could do and in a way mirror neurons are sort of like an evidence for that it's like look the brain of that person is interpreting the behavior, you know, it's like the same set of neurons that would fire if the animal or person would was doing that behavior is the same sort of neurons that fires if the other animal or person is doing it. Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that the, this this at least is like a space where there's a connection between studying an individual versus studying multiple interacting organisms. It I feels don't know. Simple. Yeah, it feels simple and sweet in a way to my ear to hear. It's like, oh yeah, it's just an extension. <laughs> But I, I don't know if I don't know which one we want to think of as primary, right? So like the second article had this this thing about uh, defining the word Ubuntu, uh, which is also the Linux operating system, of course, right? But uh, do you remember the definition? I do not. Oops, can you quote the definition? Ubuntu, yeah. Ubuntu means that a person becomes a person only through other people. What is the language it's from? 
uh, Bantu, African Bantu language. I think it's ironic that the Linux operating system is named after that because I think like Ubuntu is a very solitary experience for me no, when well, I'm using my well, so people, people computer, just using I'm not it, But people collaboratively producing Ubuntu, right? I mean, it was, oh yeah, on their like, end maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's that's you know. But so uh, and so right. I mean, if 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 I get a little bit you know fuzzy, I would say it's it's not clear whether we should say like the primary thing is social interaction and studying individual organisms is studying a sort of decontextualized individual not in the context of other things i, I mean i think scientists like to look for and and you know I, I would throw myself in this you know like like to look for sort of simple things so it's in some ways nice and aesthetically pleasing for us to say like oh yeah the simple thing is like one organism that organism in isolation is sort of primary and we can also study them in the context of their interactions with other organisms as a social phenomenon but this feels again to me like the question of like is uh is there like a social neuroscience system in the brain or something it feels like a little incoherent it's like humans are individuals and they have social interactions and yeah, yeah. you so they're, can they're both, study them and yeah. so yeah, like, you can take one away from the crowd and do stuff to it and try to understand it and you will understand something about it if you can put it in a room with another individual you might understand a little bit more but the the same problem that comes up in a lot of different types of science is that it's harder to study more complex things and because there's put, more variables yeah there's more variables and especially in this the like the whole reason that you would want to put two people in a room isn't just to have another person in the room like and a lot of psychology experience uh, experiments there is another person there's like the grad student running the experiment who comes in and explains the task to the person so there's technically like a social element to all of these psychology studies the reason that you'd want to actually just observe two people interact uh, is because there's kind of uncertainty and complexity, but that uncertainty and complexity is terrible for doing science because you can't have a controlled <laughs> well, experiment. Or, or you're looking for, I mean, so there was there's references in this literature as well to things like behavioral economics and sort of social experiments. I mean, that's in some sense like purely social psychology. Rather, I mean, though you can do some of these same experiments. Like if while, you want to understand cooperation or competition. Yeah, so you're, you're looking to understand, let's say, some like let's use the term emergent phenomena uh, at, you know, like that only exists through the interaction of people. In some ways, often in science, you actually stop studying the constituent parts when you study those. So like yeah. if you want to study cooperation, you're often going to stop looking at the details below the level at which cooperation is sort of the relevant thing. Certainly it's hard to, I think, to justify doing a brain scan of someone while trying to understand, you know, like large scale cooperation, I, I think. Well, they, I mean, they do a game, you know, that that's a very common experiment. Like, you know, they're playing a game and they can be competing or they choose to cooperate. And you want to understand like what brain regions are implicated in, you know, motivate like people yeah, being no no i, I totally understand like to do that for social neuroscience i don't think i understand to do that for you know uh economics or these other higher level I things see. yeah but people do i mean there is neuroeconomics where these kinds of cooperation versus competition studies are done and they make connections between brain areas involved in that those kinds of switches between different modes or your feelings towards a person that you're competing with and that kind of thing and I, I'm a little suspicious of the benefit that the brain scan has when you're trying to understand the economy. I mean, this kind of this kind of hits at this though directly, which is like basically due to complexity, but also not not just com like complexity of the system, but also technical difficulty. It's it's a it's it feels appropriate in some ways to look at individuals isolated from social interactions in order to study them. And in some ways, like social neuroscience is about kind of reversing or, or, or re like attempting to reverse that tendency that maybe many in neuroscience like take as an assumption. Like, is it like in some sense, the, the sort of reification of social neuroscience is the asking of the question, you know, is it appropriate to look at individuals in isolation divorced from? 
yeah. interacting with one another. Yeah, How much making... are you learning or are you making an unfair set of assumptions? Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like, uh, do what we see in isolation, does it translate in the social scenario, which in reality, life occurs unless you live in a mountain and you're alone, right? <laughs> Most of your life occurs in, in, in a social context. So it is true that in a way where we started with the assumption that we can study the brain in isolation now because of technical developments and and now we actually can potentially scan two brains at once, study two animals at once, monitor them better. Now we, we I agree with Josh, like now we, we are able to ask the opposite question is like, well, what the assumption we made, was it was it real? So we can talk about some of the studies uh, where they have been measuring two brains at one time with people yeah, interacting. Yeah, seems like the most common uh, way to measure two people is that they're playing a game together. And when they're competing, there's less synchrony than when they're cooperating. Even if they're not talking to each other, and even if like the contextual cues are all the same. Um, so I think that for me that's the most interesting phenomena that has emerged from that field of well let's measure the two brains at once and then once you measure the two brains then you can see if there's any type of coupling or any type of activity in one brain that relates to the activity in the other brain. Yeah so maybe let's also lay down some of the technical difficulties here so presuming that you're doing this with humans um, it has to be a non-invasive method, which kind of leaves you with things like fMRI or EEG. And um, one of the issues is the time scale because these like social interactions can happen on very fast time scales. They were talking about how uh, you can have dramatically different facial expressions over the course of a tenth of a second. And so um, there's kind of like a need to be monitoring both the brains at a high temporal resolution, which fMRI doesn't allow. So um, people do tend to use EEG, which has better temporal resolution, but worse spatial resolution. So you're just getting kind of these like large summed signals across the brain as these um, two people are interacting. But then that gives you like a, a good signal to, to look for things like synchrony and different um, frequencies. So what do you think about that stuff, Josh? I know that you're usually uh, have strong opinions, so I'm interested. <laughs> so there, there was there's another part of this literature that's not just about games, but about communication between you know two people or, or two animals, and synchronization of, of the brains to some extent um, when the animals are when the individuals are communicating with one another, and I mean. Some of this is sort of, in some way, straightforward. Like, and I, I mean, I don't know. For me, for me to think about this, it actually helps to start with vision. So, like, I, I, I won't, I won't digress too far. But just to say, like, it, it was a non—it's a non-obvious thing, right? That like, if you flicker lights at a person, part of their brain just starts going active and inactive with 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 the flickering of the light right it's just like at the same frequency at the same yeah, frequency almost synchronized to the stimulus right like if you flicker a light the part of the brain is going to synchronize to that stimulus and and also like if it starts being kind of a little bit non-periodic right it doesn't have to be just a fixed frequency right but it's like your brain you know it, it just it tracks the it, stimulus. It's, it's tracking the stimulus right and so it's it's not totally predictive it's like Follows, literally just, yeah. it's just okay. following it and i think in the case of you know, if when you break it down, like so, there. Are, this is also true, like to some extent, there are parts of the brain where when you speak, you know, the brain, the neural activity tracks the envelope of the waveform that you're producing, roughly. And this is true when you listen to to wave waveforms in the sort of speech range as well, right? Part of your brain will sort of become active, and it, you know, it, its its activation profile will look like the waveform of the, the the sound you're hearing. So, sort of in this like. What to me is is like almost trivial. Like I don't I don't want to I don't want to minimize mm -hmm. it, but it's like yep. it's like if I speak to you, parts of our brains will be moving at the same frequency because I'm speaking and part of my brain is correlated with the waveform of my speech and you're listening to me and so part of your brain is correlated with the waveform of of, of your speech. And like you take a whole bunch of things that are in some ways to me non-obvious like that sensory signals can drive neural activity and make the neural activity follow it or 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 when you're speaking 
you know, some of it like is, is being driven by your neural activity. And so you, you've got like this set you have of things that were discovered using individuals in like a non-social neuroscience yeah, setting. Yeah. And so this is all like, this is all somehow straightforward. But then like you can make the sort of jump to a statement that to me, like decontextualized is actually very hard to parse, which is like when two, inter- when two organisms are interacting, you see that their brains are correlated. And like, I want to know, well, is it that they're paying attention to the same things in the environment? Is it that, you know, uh, one is driving the other, you know, because it's like doing something that the other's attending to? And so somehow it's like almost like the measuring of the correlations between their brains is like the least interesting part. Like the fact that their two brains are correlated, I don't know how much that tells me other than like the two, two organisms are engaged in something participative. Well, that's the confusing thing is that so something that came up in these papers, especially the last one in brain to brain coupling, I think, was like these studies where they have people watch the same movie and they record signals from their brain and then they say things about you know how aligned the brains were and i mean that's you know more or less a a way to do non-social neuroscience if you're just interested in like how do people process movies you would show a bunch of people the same movie and then figure out like kind of what's common to the processing Mm -hmm. of it so there is a weirdness like when does it start to count as social neuroscience and what can you attribute it what can you attribute to anything being social or just about being experiencing the same stimulus i mean i think there's like a you know i've heard in the context of like a neuromarketing kind of thing where like part one one example would be like oh well if like there's a sequence in a movie that everyone's brains synchronize to the same way or in a commercial or something like this then it implies that somehow like that stimulus is captivating yeah, everybody paid attention to it. At least I would I would interpret it that way. Yeah, that's like that's the the general interpretation is that everyone's like attending to the same stuff. Sure, but that's no different than No, no individual. I, I agree. Yeah. So if you do simple like I mean the extreme version of this is you do a simple neuroscience experiment where like you know, people are looking at a blank screen and occasionally there's a picture of a face that's on for half a second. And like it'll be the case that there'll be a similar brain region in most people that lights up when the face is on, right? That's like a standard paradigm for an individual neuroscience experiment. It's just like, what brain is relevant, what brain area, I mean, you know, slightly more complicated version of this would be used to say when, you know, what brain region is involved in the processing of faces for individuals. And you would average it across individuals to say, uh, this is the brain region across individuals. So for, for, for this notion of synchrony uh, across individuals when they're engaged in something, it depends on what the cause is. And so if one organism is driving the other organism, then there's you know something potentially interesting, but I don't quite know how interesting it is. It's like interesting yeah. that one organism can drive the other organism and that their brains are, as a consequence, correlated in some way. But it's not totally clear to me that when one organism drives another organism, it, it means something deeper than there's some intermediary like the the, the waveform of their speech or something going on in and the also so space. i think i think there's a, a like a temptation to be like oh well it's not just the waveform of the speech like that's too reductionist like there's a whole holistic experience of like seeing someone speak and like there's all these nonverbal cues or whatever but that's still the same idea it's just this person is producing a physical stimulus in the world that is now entering the sensory processing system of the second person and in that way, it's not different from anything else that produced a physical stimulus in the world. It happens to be like a very high dimensional, complicated one because people have like a lot of different facial muscle- muscles and can make a lot of different, you know, small signals. But it's still the idea that this person is just producing something that the other person is then taking in. Yeah, so um, just to comment on the same is this phenomena interesting or meaningful beyond, well, we're looking at the same thing or we're experiencing the same thing, therefore our brains, yeah, they have common patterns of activity that are a simple consequence of what we're experiencing. So I, I've, I read a lot of papers last year and, and I, will, I will go related to this topic of cross-brain coupling, which is sort of like uh, how people relate to it. 
because brain-to-brain coupling is like a cross-brain coupling seems to be like the way that uh, social cognition or just like the cognition field seems to be uh, reporting this. Because I was fascinated because like I couldn't find, uh, it's almost like you know, there's the cognition people were studying this, but nothing reflected this type of consideration in the neuroscience world. So I was like fascinated by like, did this connect? Um, because we do look at cross-regional cross coupling, so it's not like the idea of coupling is new. So I was like, why, why? This, is this something that everybody's missing? Nobody knows that people do this with humans, and, uh, and what does it mean for like, animal research? So I stopped trying to decide if it's meaningful or not, but from the perspective of the animal world, one of the challenges is that you don't know when animals are paying attention to each other. So in my personal work, I've decided that I am, I am glad that I encountered this, this literature because I am doing social experiments and I, I do have the capabilities of recording from both animals at the same time. So I'm actually, I have in, in, in some of my goals include to, to use the cross-brain coupling as a measurement of attention, a potential measurement of like the mice are actually paying attention to each other. Or not, right? So yeah, I think I think that's a cool that's a that's a compelling use case because you've yeah. you've operationalized the notion of exactly instead yeah. of saying is it meaningful why is it happening? My challenge is are these mice paying attention to each <laughs> other? And I'm I because I can't ask them right. So um, yeah, and that seems in line like with the findings. Like there was um, one of the the studies was looking at people talking to each other and showing you know these kinds of synchronies that happen when people are talking to each other but they stop happening when uh, the speaker is speaking a language that the listener doesn't understand so presumably that's like the person's no longer paying attention because they couldn't mm-hmm. if they wanted exactly. to even yeah and so it seems like this is like a reasonable signal of like how engaged the two people are engaged are they attention and attention to each other? yeah yeah so I, I, I'm going to use it as a, I'm currently using it as a tool for measuring attention or engagement. Um, I'll let you know if it works in the future. Don't know yet. <laughs> cool. Um, are there any other things we want to touch on? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, so I'm still, as I, as I sort of look over the, the scope of what's going on here, it, it does feel to me that, it, as, as Grace pointed out, it, it isn't so separate from much of neuroscience. And it, it's, it slightly confuses me generally that there's an, a sort of attempt to make this as separate as it feels like the push in, in all of the articles that we read and, and other things that I've encountered. But I mean, maybe that's just part of the tendency for different academics to try to Articulate what makes their topic different or particularly interesting, and yeah, yeah. I mean, it could it, be a, a marketing tool. Of science. Yeah, yeah. And, and some, we didn't talk about. I mean, at least to motivate the the reason to study these kinds of things, there are a lot of clinical applications for this. I mean, there are like mental health issues that relate to to social interactions and that kind of thing. I mean, there are but, mental health issues that relate to like every question in neuroscience. Yeah, I, I I'm somewhat sympathetic to the argument that social things are even more interesting. Okay. Yeah. They're more damaging. Yeah, and but yeah, don't you this, think? Yeah, well, like that's kind of the the and they they point out like there are things where the disease itself is an impairment of social processing, things like autism or um, schizophrenia. Like schizophrenia or like there are also just a lot of disorders have symptoms that are about socialness. You know, you don't want to interact socially if you have other problems. I see. Um, Not that we can fix anything <laughs> so i mean that's an argument to be like it doesn't matter if there's clinical applications because it's so complicated it's not clear we're going to be able to fix anything but. so i mean it was partly just that given the reliance on philosophy and the fact that i wasn't convinced that it's so different from other parts of neuroscience rather than try to separate out social neuroscience as like a thing i mean other than just as like a subtopic you know my inclination would be to see these as as sort of you know just in line with other questions and I, I would almost rather the sort of imperative have been from social neuroscientists like yeah like most neuroscience questions ha- touch have upon element social of... elements and yeah, we could, no, we could think... kind of everything is is more related than you would have thought rather than this 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 is almost like a carving off a territory that's yeah. that's that's no the most engaging thing to me was the stuff 
that was making social neuroscience seem like any other part of neuroscience, like the the findings about um, primary sensory inputs and the processing of that. It was like, oh, this is like totally like in line with other things about neuroscience and should be studied to an equal extent. And I was more, you know, willing to or, or to even hear that most side. of neuroscience will become more interesting as it gets more social, as mm-hmm. we're able to measure more variables. Like yeah, yeah. Um, I guess, I mean, really what it comes down to is if you're pushing for social neuroscience and you're pushing especially for things like dual brain recordings, this is such a more burdensome methodology that you need to, like, promise something big and spectacular, I think. There's no way to, like, motivate people to do double fMRI recordings that they have to now align the timing of perfectly if you're not going to tell them that they're going to learn something much bigger than they could learn just from the individual ones. Well, I, I think it, it will be much bigger, but I don't know if it's going to be qualitatively separate sure, or sure. Um, in the way that maybe the, the framing of this, this tried to push itself as. Um, I just want to be the devil's advocate here, and it's possible that because of our, what's the word, our background, this is what we're interpreting, uh, what these other social scientists wrote, but um, it's it might be like where we're looking from. We're looking from this neuroscience like systems world and observing and judging this, but they might be coming from a different angles completely. So, well, I mean, these these people were neuroscientists, but they are coming from a more <laughs> no, psychology yeah. perspective. Yes, certainly. of course, yeah. 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 Yeah, and the social sciences as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Nancy, thank you very much for joining us again. It was lovely as always. Yeah, it was (laughs) awesome. Thank you. Till next time. Next time. Bye. Hey, if you're still listening to this, you must really like us. So how about you go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate the podcast, give us some feedback. You can also go to our website, unsupervisedthinkingpodcast.blogspot.com. You can comment on different episodes, or you could give us ideas for new topics you want to hear about. We would love to hear from you. Thanks.